everyone. I'm Dr. Jacqueline Duget, the host of What is Black Podcast. Throughout the month of June, What is Black Podcast episodes will be presented by Audible. I enjoy listening to books on Audible and excited to share that this month I'm launching What is Black's Book Club. Our pick for this month is Genesis Begins Again by Alicia D. Williams. Audible provides podcasts, wellness programs, Audible originals, and books that you'll enjoy as well. So sign up today for your free 30-day trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash what is black. That is www.audibletrial.com forward slash what is black to get your copy of Genesis Begins Again by Alicia D. Williams. So hello, everyone. I'm excited to have our, as one of our guests today, Alicia Williams. Um, this is a special episode. I'm focusing on the issue of colorism. I've been wanting to do this episode for a while now. And so as part of today's episode, I'm saying it's a two-parter. I have my first special guest will be Alicia Williams. She's the author of Genesis Begins Again. And then for the second part of today's episode, I'm going to interview um, a psychologist. So we'll get some more tools and resources and share more information for parents um, to really delve into this conversation a little bit more. I think Alicia will do a great job as well. And we will just use the power of both of these powerful, powerful women um, on today's episode to really elevate this conversation and hopefully, you know, I think these are these are important conversations, and I try to do that with each and every episode, um, because these are issues that impact not only the children that we're raising, but also helping us as parents, our grandparents, guardians, whoever are caring for and loving our kids, to even kind of assess our own um, deep-seated issues or concerns or our own trauma related to colorism. So I want to get into the conversation and welcome um, Alicia Williams to the program. Welcome, Alicia. Hi, thank you for having me, Jackie. So excited. We had some really great um, pre-interview conversations and we'll continue that conversation. So first and foremost, Alicia, if, if for people who don't know um, or haven't had an opportunity to read Genesis Begins again. If you can tell us a little bit about um, Genesis Begins. Sure. Again, I'm sorry. Yeah. Genesis <clears throat> Begins Again is about a 13-year-old girl named Genesis, Genesis Anderson, and she hates herself. She hates her dark skin and her natural hair. And she believes that she's beautiful, like light-skinned mom with beautiful, long, flowing hair, just like her, then dad will love her. And if he loves her like he loves mom, then he'll do right and want to take care of the family. So all throughout the story, she goes about trying to change herself to look more like mom to get dad's love and uh, affection. So again, I mean, just just you just describing the book, you know, I'm giving, I'm getting goose pimples, right? Because I really, I really enjoyed reading the book and in some ways. So let me go back. I, I did enjoy reading the book, but I can also tell you that I was also pained, um, reading the book as well. The way it even starts out, I felt like, oh my God, this poor girl, you know, I felt for, I felt for her, right. The, the things that she was going through. So I just wanted to step back a little bit. Why was it important for you, you know, this is your debut book, right, to focus yes. on such a such a complex and complicated um, story, such a, you know, at the heart of the story of colorism? I wish I could say that it was um, something I set out to do. It wasn't intentional at all. It was a story that originated about a girl who happened to be dark-skinned with natural hair, but she was also heavy set, and she was being bullied. And the story was about her um, encountering bullies, more so for her being thick, you know. But as I delved deeper into the story, and I was told, too, that middle schoolers can't handle all of those issues, which maybe they can't handle them in a book. Maybe that's what they were trying to tell me. Maybe that's too much streamline it. But I'm like, oh, no, our middle schoolers, kids can handle it. They're going through a lot. So as I, as I got deeper into the story, I stripped away the heaviness and focused on a dark skin and a natural hair. And learning more about who she was and drawn off of experiences that I went through and even observed, having a light-skinned mom and a dark-skinned uh, father, I put that in there. And the heart of the story was her really hating this dark skin 
and where it comes from and discovering, not even knowing why she hates it or that's the thing that she hates. It was the whole discovery of what is beauty and what is be what is what makes you lovable and what makes you more importantly unlovable. And those two things for her was the dark skin natural hair because that's what was like passed on to her that made her were the traits that made her unlovable. So it just really came with learning out who this who this girl was. And how does she deal with it? And where does she get this knowledge from? Why does she know that that makes her unlovable? And where, who taught her that that's unlovable? And I think for me, that really is the heart of the story as well. I mean, this, I mean, if you could have multiple hearts, right? I think <laughs> there's, there's so many, there's so many touch points, right? For, for this character. And that's, and that's why I think there's a complexity, right? Because again, you know, on the surface, it might sound like, oh, you know, we're talking about a woe is me story, right? About this young girl who doesn't like how she looks on her hair, right? But again, you kind of like, like, so you, you go into the book and you know that that's what Genesis is struggling with, right? But over the series of chapters, right? That's where the complexity and the layers get built, where you start to realize that, you know what, that question about where, where does she get that from? Like, how does she know that she's not beautiful, right? What is being told to her that's that's reinforcing that message? And I thought that was very interesting, right? Because I would I would think that, you know, maybe she's looking at magazines, right? And seeing a lot of um, white people or light-skinned people mm-hmm. in the magazine, right? But that's not what you did, right? You really, you really tackled the family dynamics. And I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that in terms of the, the family, the, the family dynamics um, that influences Genesis' views about herself. Yeah, I think it would be an easy way to just uh, acknowledge already that the media and, and social media and magazines and television already has a lack of representation. So that that's that is a given. But we're I think somebody that young may notice it, but not really hone into it immediately. Um, that's to say that some will, but it's almost like it's in the back of the head, like hey, they don't have somebody that looks like me. But, you know, we grew up like that. Like, oh, okay, they don't have it. Maybe we have good times. But it was, like, not enough. But we knew it was something that wasn't cool. It's just that we accepted it. And that's the way life is. So putting that aside, like, that is an easy way to say, oh, let's blame it all on this. But internally, I knew that this was something so much richer and deeper because it happens in families and households, not just across America, but across the globe. You know, colorism exists in every colonized country. So I thought about, in the family dynamic, we send these messages to our kids that they're not good enough. And, but how and why, right? So she gets it from her dad that she's not beautiful. And it's the little things. It's the little things as well as the outright things. It's a comparison to what is beautiful. It's the lack of affirmation or confirmation that you know you're good enough. So I needed to tackle it within the family because I grew up with it. And I felt like that. I wasn't as pretty as my light-skinned mom. I wasn't as pretty as none of my cousins on that light-skinned side. I've got compared a lot. I got, you look like your daddy. You got dark dark gums like your daddy. You got hair like your daddy. I didn't necessarily, I knew I wasn't as pretty as my light-skinned cousins because that light skin was preferential and I didn't have hair like that side of the family, but I knew I didn't necessarily want to look like my dad's side. I, but I also observed it. You know, when our grandmothers took us to church, who was getting complimented? The long hair, pretty girls. The You know, you just so pretty with that long hair. You look so smart. Oh, you just, you know, they got the compliments. We might have gotten something, you know, you have a nice personality. I saw it in, you know, in friends and how they were treated and how guys treated girls. So I was like, I thought so much deeper about this. It's happening everywhere in the home, outside the home, and this is our community. But why don't we ever talk about it? 
Now, I realize this is something that we don't talk about. You can talk if you somebody outside of our uh, race comes at us and, and, and attacks our people, we'll come together and fight you down. But when you have a grandmother telling their grandchild, ooh, you know, don't play in the sun. You look too dark like that. We don't correct it. That was so important to me because existed from generation to generation from generation since, you know, we married up and since slavery days from when we had the field in the house servants. Um, so that was something like, if we know this and we do this, so much so that we have the hashtag team light skin and hashtag team dark skin, then why aren't we addressing it? Why don't we correct our own family? Why do I have to protect my daughter from bringing around certain family members? Because I don't want them to put it in her head that she's going to be less than because she's chocolate. So that's why it was so important. I didn't want the bear of the grunt to be on, you know, outside places because we never handle what happens inside our home. We never hold people accountable with inside our home. And I, I agree, right? Because I, I think, I mean, I've had, I've had similar experiences um, on the opposite side, right? So I am, and I think most of, most of my listeners know, I'm biracial, I'm light-skinned, um, and, and in some instances, right, some people might say that I'm ambiguous. And then growing up, knowing that skin color mattered, right? It's like, you, mm-hmm. you knew it was there, it was in the media, and then it's kind of like, well, I don't want to continue to perpetuate that, right? Because I, I know that they're, you know, this team light skin, skin team dark skin. I, re, you know, you just reminded me of like when I was younger, right? I, I was at the age when school days first came out, right? Yeah. I'm probably like high school, high school. Well, maybe not. I'm maybe a little bit older. So maybe late high school, early college when school One days came out. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's true. Right. And it's like almost like tw- well, over 20 years ago, maybe closer to 30 years ago now. It's like, like you're saying, it still, it still exists today. And I think, and I think you speak to it, right? We don't, we don't talk about it. And even if we do talk about it, it's talked about there's so you know, we're we're angry, right? And I think rightfully so, because of the tra- because I call it trauma, the historical systemic racism that's led to internalized racism and in some instances for us to disparage one another and create these schisms within our own culture. Mm-hmm. And how that now impacts our children. So so I kind of want to kind of delve into that a little bit in terms of the intergenerational piece, right? So you talk, you mentioned how um, she, Genesis has a light-skinned mom, a dark-skinned father, right? But then it, I think what's also interesting is, again, there's this intergenerational piece, right? Later on in the book, right, there are opportunities where you find out mom's, you know, mom's history and the contributions from grandmother and great-grandparents, right? And then you also finally hear the contribution of the dad's, you know, the trauma that dad faced. Right. And so I kind of wanted to talk about that as well in terms of um, how, how as parents, we perpetuate things. And, you, and I think you sort of alluded to it before, things that get said or things that get done, because I know there's a scene in the, scene in the book. And I'm just excited about the book, so I'm sorry if I'm all over the place. <laughs> There's a scene in the book where um, Genesis talks with her mom, and we kind of talked about this pre-interview, and they, and she talks about how, I think either she internalizes, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, where Genesis kind of thinks, thinks to herself, well, her mom always fusses with her hair, right? Her mom mm. doesn't want her to get a relaxer. But the things she says about her hair, her mom doesn't doesn't believe that she's contributing to how Genesis is feeling, right? But the fact that you show that juxtaposition of the you know mom makes mom has made comments, mom makes comments about oh your hair is so tough, right? Um, don't get it wet. So I just want to talk about that as well. How how those subtle things um, kids kids pick up on even those subtle things that we don't. Or they're not, they're not they're implicit right but they're not explicit not a parent I would hope a parent does not purposely try to disparage their child right but those are things that we learn that are then passed on to our kids right and I, I would hope parents don't but I've witnessed enough 
parents do. <laughs> I've witnessed growing. I've witnessed, you know, um, you ain't gonna be the whole what dad went through. Mm-hmm. I've witnessed it, you know, um, it happening, and it hurt me so much that these kids were so powerless. To, but to be told that they weren't going to be, ever be anything, you black this, you black that, from a dark-skinned parent. And I thought, where would this anger come from? You know, where is it coming from? But then on the flip side, it's the subtle things, too, right? Mm-hmm. Because mom does say, y'all got to deal with this tangled mess. Oh, it's you know, it's, it's never a, a thing of beauty or a thing of what they say, the crowning glory, right? Mm -hmm. It's a mess. It's a hassle. It's a burden. And so these words and how we use them already tells us that if it's a burden to you, then it's a burden to me. If I can't, if I can't play in the sun or you, you mentioned, oh, my mom does it all the time. And I'm like, mom, I wrote a book about it. You know, oh, you, you got dark, you know, like, and this, and this might be an observation, but it's the tone that she uses it in, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you don't want to, you don't want to do that because if you do that, then you'll have that. So we tend to have it in, a, and then so the thing is, Jackie, I, I think people are it's so ingrained that they don't even think that they're um, um, favorite colorism. I think it's so ingrained in some, because I don't think, like, people I know think of themselves as uh, prejudiced against dark and light-skinned people. I, 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 I think it's so ingrained to say, oh, he was, he's so handsome to be so dark. She's so cute to be. It's so ingrained that when I hear it, I'm like, did you hear what you said? What? Did you hear that you called him, he's handsome, to be dark? Oh, I didn't mean anything by it. It's like, oh, but you have to understand, you think that way even subliminally, that he can't be handsome to if he's not uh, light-skinned, but he's an exception. So we get this, this whole treatment. And I think back, you know, uh, growing up, my brother had to have a, a he only dated light-skinned girls. And he only had to have them with colored eyes. And my cousins on my mom's side only dated light-skinned girls with colored eyes. And I thought, oh, gosh, he's never telling me that I'm not cute. My brother's not telling me I'm ugly. My cousins are not telling me I'm, I'm ugly. But they're showing me that I am. They're showing me that I'm not lovable because they would never date somebody that looks like me. So we do these, and we don't even realize how ingrained it is. So we don't have to be verbally abusive and like a dad was. We could do it just like grandma was. Eternally, I think, yeah, you have an easier life if you're light-skinned because that provides privilege. And what do I see? I see who's getting arrested, who has the lower jobs. Historically, who are the laborers? If you don't look like them, then you have an easier life. And I, I, I wonder if we're still thinking that way because we've always thought that with the whole brown back then. You, that meant if you darker than the brown back, then you can't be in certain families. You couldn't work, have certain jobs. You weren't allowed in certain churches. The whole colorism was so ingrained. Even sororities. Back in the day, sororities were definitely with the whole color, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and even today, there is a stigma. AKAs are the light-skinned ones with the pretty hair, you know, Sigma Gamma Rose and Deltas are the dark-skinned ones with it, you know. So do we do it purposely? Some of us, definitely. There's a whole of us. But then there's some of us who are just, that's the way it's been. And I think, you know, the way to sort of, and that's my hope, right, to have these conversations. I, you know, everyone's going to have their own personal experience, their own family experience, um, but again, just I think sharing opportunities to talk about, like the, like you said, like these really tough topics that I think are are definitely ingrained, right? It's it's inter- it's it's since the inception of um, this country, as well as other countries, in terms of how we how we how we create how we create status, how we determine status, how do we term determine beauty, how do we determine who's who's worthy based on you know something as 
as superficial as color of the skin. I mean, it's not it's not superficial in the sense that it's you know it's it's a you know race is a construct, but in our society, because of our racial classifications, because of you know power and privilege that's ascribed to someone because of the color of their skin or lack of the color of the skin. You know, it's like, it's it's crazy, right? And I really see this as a legacy of racism that has has caused this ingrainedness of our negativity um, and how, we, how, we're di- how we're dividing ourselves. Not all of us are doing it, but it's enough so that, like you said, you, so you're an educator, right? And you can probably speak to speak more to your personal experiences, even with, that you've seen in the classroom, right? We all know that this exists, right? And our kids, this is just one extra thing, an extra burden that our kids have to deal with. But if we don't talk about it, if we don't have an opportunity to find space to talk about it, then it'll continue, right? No one, no one's going to share their, the suffering that they're going through unless we're willing and open, willing, willingly being open to talking about these important topics. Right. But, you know... Um... And I just don't know if kids have the, especially our younger kids, younger than middle school, um, have the vocabulary or the experience to associate what they're feeling about the color. So definitely, in, when I was working in kindergarten for six years, uh, I think we might have chatted, or you heard, you heard this before, but... For those who didn't, me working in kindergarten kind of opened my eyes. Now, I was at a predominantly white school. So every year we get a mix, maybe two or three kids of color, different nationalities. But they knew any brown skin, they knew, they knew that it was not acceptable. And how did we know this? Now, most most teachers would never pick up on it. But I happened to be in a classroom with a, a Mexican-American and me. So we're both brown-skinned. We, we noticed, we started paying attention. Why is it that our kids of color, any brown skin, whether they're African-American, whether they're Indian, whether they're uh, uh, Korean, they did not, they did not choose the skin tones. Now, uh, multicultural crayons and multicultural pencils and markers, they did not choose a skin tone that matches their skin color. Now, our uh, uh, Caucasian kids, they did. They would actually choose every skin tone. And if they drew their family portraits, they draw, they may color in mom or dad brown skin because they saw them as tanned. They did not have a limitation or apprehension when it came to picking up a crayon for the color of the skin. But our kids, they would not choose it. And maybe maybe towards the middle of the school year, we could see them, you know, after encouraging them, like, oh, matching the crayon up to their skin and, and affirming them, yes, this is yours. They would, they would take the crayon, but they were shaded in so lightly. At the end of the school, the school year, they're with the other peers by that point, and they're, you know, doing what they have, kids on day one have done. They'll press in deeper. But they would not press in that crayon or accept the color. Every now and then you had some that did. But I remember, there's distinctly uh, kids who knew that that was not acceptable. And I thought, where would they get that? They know that their hair texture was different. They knew it was big and bushy because they were said they hated their hair after looking at the other girls, you know, the uh, finer hair. They knew it because of the, the things that they say or the tears, you know, being in the bathroom. Why is she in the bathroom? We go check. She's in the bathroom trying to press down her hair. We knew it because after girls being in kindergarten, first grade and second grade, by the time they're, you know, fourth and fifth, after parents stop braiding and doing ponytails, they get them hair straightened. And that's when they got affirmation from other teachers. We're like, no, don't tell them they're beautiful now because they have straight hair, right? Because you didn't validate them when they were younger with the struggling with the puffy hair. So they knew that they weren't beautiful until they started changing themselves. 
Why did they know it? I had a, a little girl who would not go in the sun. I was like, Joshna, please, it's so pretty out here. She would try to avoid going out during the recess and, and being anywhere near the sun. Even walking to it, she would try to get into the shade. And, and I thought, that's got to be hard. What is she gaining? What is she getting at home? What messages? You know, and why don't we have any... What are, how are we tackling it if we do see it? Now, we tackled it in our classroom. We had the books, you know, of uh, different books up displayed around the room. We read books. I like me. I like my color, skin tone books. We read them all. We read books were featuring um, uh, kids of color in the illustrations just to show that like there's a, not only um, a reflection of who you are, but kids of color, you know, that's not of color need to see what beauty is as well. See something that's not a default. So we tried so much to tackle it. However, that's just us. So what happens on a bigger scale when people don't even acknowledge that these subliminal messages are happening, that they're screaming to say, I'm not good enough. Do you not see it? They don't have the words to say it. Or that the greater world is acknowledging beauty as more European, you know, like with the hair. So, yeah, I see it. They don't have the vocabulary or they don't know how to express that. They just know something, right? By the time they grow older, it might even be too late because it's already so ingrained that they hate it, they don't fit in, that they're already changing themselves to assimilate. Now, being an educator... Do you, and I, and I think we talked about this a briefly as well in the pre-interview, I was, you know, I was thinking as you were writing the book, right? I mean, I know you, you set out to write about Genesis, right? But did you, were you really thinking in terms of writing the book that, okay, this would be, I would use my teacher, my teacher background, my experience as well to have a book that could be a tool to help parents? Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I, I only, I wrote the book because it happened so organically. Everything in that book happened so organically through every revision and every conversation I had with someone else, there would be a, a connection. I could be in the theater and see something and ah, that's why. Uh, I'll, I'll read something and it'd make the story even deeper. I never set out, like, this is a book about colorism and this is going to be used in the classroom and this is going to save some, have some conversations. No, I didn't even think people would read the book. I knew it was going to be out, but I didn't think people, you know, I didn't think it would be where it is now, you know? Um, so I, I was, I was afraid to write the book. Uh, I started it while I was in graduate school and it was, um, a low residency. So I was only there twice a year for two weeks and I worked one-on-one -on -one with an advisor. But I was told by the only African-American faculty member that I had while I was, you know, trying to figure out the story, I was told not to write it. She didn't tell me why, but she told me, you know, not to write it. And I got discouraged and I went on to something else. And my last semester, it was... Um, another te teacher, and she said, hey, I need to see something you've been working on. All the other teachers thought it was something I should pursue, except that one African-American teacher. I said, nope, I'm not going to work on it. I told, I was told not to work on it. She's like, I want to see the manuscript. I was like, no, I put it away. I'm not, I'm, I'm on to something else. She's like, I need to see it. So I'm done. She said, send me the manuscript. I sent it to her, and she said, I don't think it's the writing. I think it's the story. I think it rubbed her raw. And that fear of, oh my gosh, this lady who was esteemed, who is an excellent writer, if she's the voice of and the pulse of what literature might be acceptable, and it rubbed her raw, I shouldn't pursue this story. Because if I try to pursue this story, people will tear me up. That's not how we don't talk about this. We don't air our dirty laundry. We don't, you know, we, we sweep it under the rug. And I was so afraid that if, if I pursued this, and it turns out that I did pursue it and it did get published, but I still held my breath. And, and I 
did not know if people, our people, who were ready, if we were ready to talk about colorism. Well, so I, I never even thought about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I I can understand that um, that vulnerability because I like listening to, to Brene Brown. But again, this courage and bravery that you had to write the book, I can I can understand the 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 hesitancy, the trepidation, right, the concern. Mm-hmm. But again, I think I think it's such an important topic, right? And I think this is the ultimate case of right. You gotta write. You gotta write your story, right? You gotta write the story that is that is calling you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, so when I you know listen to your your interview on NPR, um, the the person who interviewed you talked about like made a comparison. I thought that was an amazing comparison to Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye. And how did you feel about? I mean, you're your own individual writer, but again. I'm just thinking, like, the, what she may have gone through in her time to to write this book, The Bluest Eye, and then now for our generation, you know, for these for these young people this time, there's your book, Genesis Begins Again. Oh, yes, Ari Shapiro with, um, yeah, whew, he threw me some hard questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so the, he got that from the New York Times. They reviewed it for their middle school book selection. So uh, I was very fortunate. And so seeing it in print, in that paper, it was it was a twofold. I was ecstatic because that meant it was, they chose this book, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh my gosh, they chose this book out of all the books. But it terrified me because it held a standard to someone who we know, who we know is like, the epitome of what, you know, a, a literary scholar, you know, the whole canon of literary, the literary canon. So I could not, as a debut author, be compared. And I was like, okay. But, but when you take a step back, there is some relief writing for middle school that it's, it's literary, but it does, what I see what they're saying is it captures that Bluest eye is whole cola wanting blue eyes to be beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, but dealing with the angst of not even knowing why she feels that way, too much to the point where she tears up her dolls, right? She did, she tore up these white dolls, or she hated the white girl. But in this hate that I don't know where it's coming from, but I know it's a legitimate feeling that I'm getting from somewhere. So it, it says to me that I'm onto something here that they saw that I was enough onto something that is is in that vein of this conversation that is only touched on every so often. So I'm, I'm so lucky that they said that the bluest eye, because if it touched that vein of self-hate and internalized racism, this whole topic that we don't always, we, we address and we'll talk about, but then we'll let go. Like school days, we addressed, we laughed at it, we sang with it, and we let it go, right? And it's, a, it's a, the, so hopefully with the middle school, they put this in there with the words that make people like, ah, I see now. This is something we need to tackle. If they did one thing for me is for people to pay attention that this is something we need to tackle. Toni Morrison already brought it there, but we need to tackle it at an earlier age. Because I totally agree with you with that. And I think, I mean, I think that's, you know, I really don't like to compare people, but if you're going to be be compared to somebody, I think Toni Morrison is like, that's, that's a great, that's a great compliment. <laughs> I think, I think us writing about a topic, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't like to tackle, but we, but what, what I would, if it's anything that I'm appreciating is that is, like you said, the bravery of tackling something and revealing it with this ugliness and the rawness of, of like, making us face ourselves, make, making us face and hold accountable. This is something that, you know, look at the kids. Pecola was a kid. Not Pecola. That's not the, uh, I'm thinking, Pecola is the one that got pregnant. Um, the other main character that's telling the narrator. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, that was, those were children. And you hear that the adults didn't even pay attention to what was going on enough, or the trauma that was happening in that book. They weren't even they weren't even tuning into the trauma that they were going to have 
they're putting on their children and they will be on their grandchildren. But you know what I what I loved? I just want to talk a little bit about the agency of your main character, Genesis. Because, I mean, as a, as a parent, as I'm reading the book, right, at the, you know, because the parents had their own dysfunction um, and, and they were caught up in their, you know, survival. And I was thinking, like, oh, they're missing something. Why don't they know that, the, that their daughter is suffering? Why don't they know this, right? And I think, I think as parents, right, stuff happens and we, we give as much love and as we can at that time, right? And so I understand, I can understand where the, you know, how you, how you created those, those parents, but it was, go back to the agency. Um, Genesis was finally brave enough to tell her parents, right? Individually, her mom, what she was going through and her dad, what was going through. And I think that's so real, right? I think, I think there are times when I think even with my own kids, right? They've said something and it's like, oh my God, right? It's a, it's a wake up moment. It's a light bulb mm-hmm. moment. It's like, okay, I've got to get engaged and I've got to ask the questions. Cause, and then you also feel the shame and guilt, right? Oh my God, mm-hmm. I can't believe this happened to me. But I love that even, uh, that even layered in, in reality check and complexity of the role parents can play, right? Or sometimes what we're, what we're missing, um, but when, but you know, with the things that are happening with our kids, we're all guilty of that. <laughs> yes, life is busy. We're handling bills. We're juggling work. We're, but we and we don't slow down to tune in. And you made me think of um, as a, I was at a conference and on a panel, and afterwards a young girl and I'm, I was rushing to get to another another panel, and but she stopped me and. Oh, it was so much in her voice. And she said, if she has issues like this, you know, how does she make her mom listen? Right? What is she, the whole idea, how do, that's a lot. And that's a lot to ask. I said, that's a lot to ask you to make your mom listen when, you know, we're the moms, we're the dads. It's our duty. It's our duty to listen, our duty to care for them, to nurture them, to, to be there, be present, right? But we don't. So, and I said, what I'm going to ask you to do is I need you to be brave. It's so hard because I had to do this with my daughter. I had to do it with my daughter because I missed something very important she was going through. Be brave. And, 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 I, and I need you to tell her, you know, set a, set a space in the house. And this is where you go. This one space. And even if you have to have a talking stick to make her say, this is what I, I need you to look in my eyes when you hold this stick. I need you to hear me. No, do nothing else. And go to that sacred space that you have dedicated to be your safe space to talk, right? And so we, we try to come up with this plan. I don't know, you know, that was in a different state, you know, so I never would know. But the idea of that's what I told my daughter. You know, I'm glad you're brave. Our kids have to be brave. Not all of them are, but they're screaming. To, they're doing things other in other ways to let you know they're hurting or they're dealing with something. Every, when you come home to, from school and how, how's everything? Fine. It's not fine. We don't slow down to say, what, what does fine mean? What does okay mean? Tell me. You know? So um, it's, I'm glad Genesis was brave. I don't think I was that brave. <laughs> I wish I were, but, but again, I still, I mean, like you said, like, I mean, you, 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 I think you spoke, you know, you spoke truth to, to the, the experience of parents, right? It doesn't matter, um, what socioeconomic level you are, right? There's stuff that you have to deal with, right? And sometimes that stuff detracts us from the parenting part. But what I love about the reality of this book is that despite the other stuff the parents are, were going through, right? When Genesis needed them to listen, they listened, right? It, I probably would have liked it, you know, if this was real life. I like, you know, shake a parent. It's like, okay, this should have been done and this scene and this chapter, right? But it's real, right? And, and I, that speaks to parents. And that's why, again, I love the power of books and I love the power of this book. Because as a parent, like you said, you know, life happens and parenting is tough right and sometimes we miss those cues that our kids give us but again you know opportunities yeah Yeah. we figured that out yes right you know like a book like this right if we read with our kids or 
you know, the opportunities to ask those questions or you know, your great suggestion of creating a space, right? Um, creating opportunities where, like you said, the one, the one, the child holds the stick and speaks and the person, your parent listens and vice versa, right? So there's small things that we can do um, that are impactful things, that are quality things that I think will slowly help us sort of address this. And then I also wanted to, to briefly mention again, or kind of go back to your point about writing a book for middle schoolers and why it was so important to tackle it for this age. Um, and why, why, why did you say that was so significant to, to think that it's important to talk about it um, younger? Like we talked about the bluest eye before, you know, it's more for older kids, but why it was so important to really tackle it for kids um, and this this young age, age the middle grade age age range. You know, um, since I didn't know what the story was about, I did hear her voice. And Genesis came to me as a thirteen year old. She pretty much took over the story as as when it started developing. Her voice became so real to me that it woke me up in the middle of the night. Like, nope, that's not how I would say it. <laughs> you know, uh, that's not true. And I think, in retrospect, if I tried to control it, I would have said make it older, because maybe the kids, the kids are on social media and they're seeing, you know, uh, Black China hawking. Um, uh, bleaching creams. They see the light skin versus dark skin. So I thought maybe, but now that I, I, I honor Genesis' voice, I'm so glad because kids are so open at this age to hear and make these decisions. And at this age, I see that readers from all nationalities are seeing themselves in this. And they can see without being stepping back, like, oh, this is only a book about colorism. They're seeing themselves in it, which it seems to me so much more powerful because it makes the, them get deeper into this whole psychological thing without being too deep. Um, another thing with it being 13 in middle school, I think kids can handle it. We coddle our kids a lot and saying not ready. They're just not ready. Where I hear it a lot. And and my at the school I'm um, working at, you know, they're not ready. They're too young. They're not. No, they're dealing with stuff and they can handle it. And they need to see how other kids that deal with stuff handle things. I think it's a prime age, and I'm very lucky in the manner of writing at 13 and the way the language is that I have older readers in high school. But 13 was that age that came to me. I wish I was, I wish I could take the credit, but the, the, that voice came out just like that. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and then before, before we end, cause I, cause I, this conversation went definitely longer than I had anticipated. And I'm looking forward to, um, to sharing this whole conversation with my audiences. So my, my next guest, that'll be the part two of this episode. But I did want to talk to you a little bit more about the title, Genesis Begins Again. And I mean, I like to think, you know, kind of get deep with stuff. I was thinking, was it in, again, I'm just wondering if it's intentional, right? The yeah. fact that Genesis yeah. Begins Again and Genesis is really a beginning. Yeah, I know it wasn't. Uh, I didn't even name it. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I, I had several different working titles and a um, hundred reasons why I think was one of them because she has this list that she keeps of things, reasons why she hates herself. But that was so, it was another title too close to it, like 13 reasons why I had um, the end of the world because, you know, in middle school, when things happen, you just feel like the end of the, it's the end of the world. And somebody told me that was a little bit too morbid. <laughs> so I had to change it. And so it went through several working titles. But when I signed the deal with Simon & Schuster, it came back with that title. They gave it that title. But somehow it just worked. But again, in the towards the end of the book, there's a reference to Genesis beginning again. Yeah, well, that, that, because I didn't have the ending, 
um, I didn't know how to end the the story, but I I knew I didn't want it to be, ah, she magically loves herself and everything is so, you know, rose-colored glasses, because that's not life. Mm -hmm. Even as adults, we still struggle with some childhood stuff. And we still struggle with self-acceptance. You know, we're in the mirror trying to see what why we got love handles, right? We're hating certain things. And it and it's not always, oh, I love myself just the way I am. So I wanted, but I needed to have hope. And so it just came together. And I thought that part was me adding that line in there. And I thought, so I thought it was, I thought I was being clever. <laughs> no, I think you, I think you, I think you, I think you did. I think you did a marvelous job with that, because again, it's like, oh my god, I finally get it, right? Because again, I was trying to think like when I first picked up the book, I'm like, okay, how does it? How does Genesis begin? Begin again? Tie into the story, right? Like, how does how does this really depict the story? And then again, like you take you take us full circle, right? You take us back to kind of where she starts out in a way, right? And there's this opportunity to sort of reimagine herself but she's st- but I know she's still going to struggle right because she's just 13 right well not just say just 13 it kind of makes it you know sound like but she is 13 and she still has her whole life ahead of her but I think that's such a great lesson even at that age to learn to start to feel about you know learn about self-acceptance having an opportunity to be brave because there are many instances where she has to step out and be brave as well. It's not just about accepting herself, right? But it's all the things as a middle schooler you've got to deal with, like the mean girls, Mm -hmm. you know, friends and new schools, right? So she really, I mean, she lives a full life, right? I don't want to just make this story. It's not just about colorism, right? She does struggle with identity, but she's all she's. It's a it's a it's a coming of age, right? And we all have, like you said, all have stuff that we have to deal with that we're going through at that age, to deal with racism, to deal with internalized racism. That's a lot heavier, right? But but she's uh, funny too. So that's why you, she's 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 flawed. She's funny. She's I hope she's likable. I think, mm-hmm. um, which. I didn't. I needed to have some humor. I think some a lot of more humor was edited out, but um, but I, I wanted her to be likable. But she said she has suffered. You're right. <laughs> she has gone through a lot in this book, but she comes out. And I and I, I kids. I have to say, and you'll know this now even more. Our kids go through so much. And just imagine, I've, I've gone to cl- schools and we've done, uh, when, if it's an intimate class, you know, or intimate group, they're dealing with mental health issues. They're mm-hmm. dealing with suicide. They're dealing with bullying, low self-esteem. They're dealing with lack of confidence and loneliness and isolation. And they're dealing with so much that I think that's why People are able to see themselves in, in stories and it gives them some kind of hope. Yeah. And I think, and I think how you kind of help create that hope, you know, the friends, the friend group that she has, like, and again, despite the fact that, you know, family has some, some struggles, they're still there for her. Right. Or they're there mm-hmm. as much as they can be. Um, so I think that, you know, that really, to me, also makes it, again, just gets back to the reality, right? Life happens. But again, we have to be we have to be willing to get to a place where, as parents, we need to show up when we need to show up. You yeah. know, t- take those cues and listen to our kids. And I think, again, I think this is a this is a great conversation starter. There's so much. And, and then we didn't even talk about the, you know, the books, the music that are that are that's also referenced throughout the throughout the book now that's again too like those the the music and the artists that you that you feature in the book um oh man ella fitzgerald um joseph not josephine etta james and i forget yes billy holiday yes yes beyonce rihanna i mean everybody's in motown everybody's in this story i didn't realize until i reread it and then there's so many little references. Uh, Miles Davis, um, she mentions. I mean, but the one she studied, had, you know, heavily are the three: Etta James, Ella Fitzgerald, and Billy, uh, Billie Holiday. 
because I was wondering again I always like to also get into the minds of writers as well the intention of the connection of that that music to the story because I think you know again uh, she points out I think the character really kind of um, finds something in them right that reflects reflects back to her it was a lot of fine-tuning to get to that point mm-hmm. um, because I just visualized that Genesis would eventually have a wall create a wall that will be reflective of people that she would admire right mm-hmm and initially, it was so many people that I could think of. You know, I even had this girl that flew a plane um, that lived in, I think, California, a young girl, the first girl who flew a plane at her age. And she was African-American as well. And I thought, hey, she should go on the walk. So I was just thinking of all the people that she would read about. But as the story was revised and edited and streamlined, and she was in chorus, it just came. And I, re- I just, I think it started off with Billie Holiday, because I honestly remember the very first time I heard Billie Holiday. And I remember, not the very first time, the very first time I heard her um, in headphones, like the big DJ headphones. I was in the library, too. And I remember, oh my gosh, this woman is incredible. And I think that's why I put Billy, but then everything else just kind of happened. And as I listened and wrote with Billy, you know, I'm like, who else would I like to listen to and write to? And and it flowed. Oh, I think I think this is an amazing book. I'm so happy that I've had the opportunity to to speak with you about the book. And I've had the, had the opportunity to read it. I was like, you know, I had to, I'm like, got to make sure I finish, finish reading the book for the interview today. Cause you know, little, you know, we're all, we're all a little bit busy with, with coronavirus going yeah. on, but this was, this was a, this was definitely a nice, um, a treat for me, um, to get away from coronavirus and have an opportunity oh, thank you. Thank you. to read this wonderful book. Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you. Appreciate it. So much. You're so welcome. Thanks for joining us this week on What is Black Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And for more information about the podcast, our blogs, and subscribe to our upcoming newsletter, go to our website at whatisblack.co. As always, subscribe to the show to catch every new episode. And don't forget to leave us a review so we can continue to bring you fresh content. Until next time, thank you for listening.